The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and flip to Galatians 5, verses 13 through 15. As I mentioned, the main idea of the passage this morning is this. Living in the freedom of Christ results in serving and loving others, not selfishness. So stand with me, if you will, in honor of the reading of the word of God as we read Galatians 5, 13 through 15. For you were called to freedom, brothers, Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this passage. Thank you for helping guard us against lives of selfishness and sinfulness, for we know that there is no joy to be found there. But in our sinfulness and and wicked hearts, God, we are prone to wonder toward that. And so thank you for your word, for guarding and protecting our lives. We pray that we would submit ourselves to it this morning. Pray that your spirit would move and work in our hearts today to apply its teaching to our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you look at verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers, you'll notice that the beginning of this verse sounds very similar to the way that Paul started chapter five. Chapter five, verse one says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So in verse one, Paul is giving an exhortation to the Galatians to fight for freedom by not enslaving themselves to the heavy burden of the law. But in verse 13, Paul is giving a warning not to carry that freedom too far, not to abuse the freedom that Christ has purchased. Tim Keller has distinctly stated that Paul has put forth two principles in chapter five. The first in verses one through 12, don't lose gospel freedom. And the second in verses 13 through 15, don't abuse gospel freedom. So Paul in writing verses 13 through 15 is anticipating a potential misunderstanding of Christian freedom. And he gives us a clarification as to what it means. And here's what he says. While Christ has set you free from the burden of the law, he has not given you freedom to live however you want. And he warns us according to this principle. It's our first point of the text. False understanding of freedom creates a culture of destruction. When we misunderstand our freedom in Christ, it leads us to destruction. Now in verse 13, he says that we were called to freedom. So let's first define what Paul means by freedom as that will enlighten what he means in the rest of the text. If we're going to understand what freedom is in Christ, we need to first step back and ask the question, who or what were we enslaved to before Christ? Then we can understand what it means that Christ has set us free. 
So we don't have time to look through all of the New Testament scriptures on this topic, but John 8, 34 summarizes it perfectly. It, it summarizes our enslavement issue. Here's what it says. Everyone who commits a sin, that's all of us, is a slave to sin. And the problem with our enslavement to sin is that beyond the fact that it enslaves us, it carries with it a consequence. And that consequence is God's wrath. So Ephesians 2, 3 summarizes these ideas well. It says that the result of our sinful nature is that we are by nature children of wrath. So the slavery that we experienced apart from Christ was slavery to sin, death, and the wrath of God. Which means that when the Bible talks about freedom in Christ, it's talking about a freedom from sin, not a freedom to sin. Christian freedom is a freedom of deliverance, what we're freed from, not a freedom of permission, what we're freed to do. But beyond a proper definition of freedom, Paul also is concerned with the purpose of our freedom. If you continue reading in verse 13, you see that he's concerned with how we use our freedom. And he contrasts two different ways to use it. One is right, and one is very, very wrong. He says, you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. So he sets up this contrast here for how we use our freedom. We have love and service on the one hand and selfishness and sin, the result of the flesh, on the other. In other words, we can use our freedom for self or we can use our freedom for others. The misunderstanding of freedom for self leads to two incorrect uses of freedom that we'll talk about. The first is selfishness and the second is sinfulness. A danger of overemphasizing our personal freedom in Christ is that we immediately think of all the things that we are free to do and we fail to consider any sort of responsibility that we might have to others. So if you're one of those people in the room who really clings to your personal freedom in Christ, then you may even have just had an issue with what I just said. A responsibility to others? Why should I have a responsibility to others? I'm free. You can't bind me to someone else. You can't put a burden of another person's needs on top of me. I, I'm free. So this type of person is probably a person that doesn't serve consistently within the church. They may be hard to nail down for things like fall festival or VBS, not because they're opposed to serving, but because they're waiting to, to see if something else on their calendar pops up that they might prefer to do more. They might have a hard time committing to a growth group because if you commit to a growth group, then you're committing to a group of people to serve them, to invest into them. You might get asked to bring a PCO item from time to time. You, get, you might get invited to go to lunch with someone that you don't know very well. All of these things they see as an assault on their personal freedom that nothing should be required of them because they're free. But Paul says, that's the flesh talking. That's not Christ. That's not the freedom that he purchased. 
Freedom in Christ is not the freedom to live selfishly and freedom in Christ is not the freedom to live sinfully. Paul clearly shows us this principle in Romans 6, verses one and two. He says, are we to continue sinning so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So remember the the context of the Galatians. They're Gentiles. That means that before Christ, they were pagan, idolatrous, and immoral people. Which means that if they misunderstand Paul's teaching on freedom and they carry it too far, then they'll return to their old way of life. But this time they think, I've got Jesus in my back pocket and he'll cover all of my sins. There's a quote. This was their argument. We love to sin, God loves to forgive. Why not indulge our natural appetites so as to give God all the more occasions to show his grace? So Paul gives some clarity to their freedom by warning them that freedom in Christ is not a license to sin. That's the other danger of overemphasizing our personal freedom in Christ. We think that we're free to do whatever we want to do and to live however we want to live. And anyone who puts a restriction or a constraint on our freedom is a Pharisee who needs to lighten up. Here's how we see it articulated in our culture. It's when a Christian looks at another Christian and says, you can't judge me. Who are you to judge me? Christ has set me free. I'm free to do what I want. Christ doesn't judge me. Why should you? Well, the reality is that the the Bible does actually have some things to say about how we live our lives in light of Christ. Flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 through 20. First Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says this, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. When Christ purchased your freedom, he purchased you. You are not your own. Yes, you are free from sin, from death, from God's wrath, but you are not free to sin. And beyond living selfishly and sinfully, Paul shows us another destructive result of misunderstanding our freedom in Christ. And that is conflict. Look at verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So when I read verse 15 in light of verse 13, you know what my response is? Duh, of course. How could it not lead to conflict when Christians are living in selfishness and sinfulness? When I'm prioritizing all of my needs and all of my freedoms over and above everyone else's, of course there's conflict. But here's the dangerous part. Paul's not just talking about a little scuffle. Paul isn't just saying that when we live selfishly and sinfully that There might be a little disagreement between the members of the church. No, what he says in verse 15, those words that he uses, bite and devour, those are words that are commonly used in Greek to describe wild animals. 
So have you guys ever watched Planet Earth or uh, one of the Discovery Channel shows that highlights what these, these animals do to each other? One of my favorites is watching a python fight an alligator. You just have this brutal force just throwing punch after punch and bite after bite. And at the end of it, what's the result? Both creatures are exhausted and bloodied. This is Paul's warning for the Galatians that if we misunderstand freedom and we live lives of selfishness and sin, eventually we'll attack each other and we will wound each other so deeply that the end result, he says, is that they're consumed by one another. Other translations use the word destroyed. It's not completely clear what exactly Paul means when he says their destruction or that they consume one another. Could mean a few different things, but I can promise you none of them are good. At its best, it means that the selfishness, sin, and conflict in the body of Christ will destroy the Christian witness and influence of the church. At worst, it means that the Galatians wound each other so deeply that they abandon the faith and they walk away from the church. Students, you can't begin to imagine how many times I hear that, that fighting, disunity, clickiness, anger destroys a person's entrance into the church. So if we've learned anything so far, it's that we have a tendency to interpret our personal freedom in Christ through the lens of our sin-stained hearts. So we need God to tell us what true freedom is. And Paul shows us that there is indeed a right way to use our freedom. While a false understanding of freedom creates a culture of destruction, verse 14 shows us that a true understanding of freedom creates a culture of love. Actually, let's look at the second half of verse 13. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but here's how we should use it. Through love, serve one another. The Greek word translated serve is actually the root word for slave. So catch this. This is so counterintuitive. This is Jesus Christ turning his kingdom upside down, totally different from how the world does things. This is freedom in Christ. Being free in Christ is being a slave to one another. Being free in Christ is being a slave to one another. Now, you're probably thinking, that doesn't sound like freedom to me. But before you disagree, let me ask you to consider something. Consider Christ himself. Is there anyone more free than Jesus? He's God. He can literally do whatever he wants. He can look at a storm and tell it to stop and it listens. He's not bound to anything. He's not beholden to anything. And with all that freedom in the universe, what does he decide to do? He gives up his own life for the sake of people who have despised and rejected him. Why? Because Jesus in all his perfection and wisdom knows something that our fallen human minds cannot comprehend apart from his spirit, that true freedom is found in dying to self. The Christ who calls us to freedom 
is the same Christ who calls us to deny ourselves, pick up our cross and follow him. So these two ideas of freedom and putting oneself to death go hand in hand. To be free is to die to self and live to others. So students, let's look at this from your perspective. I think I can make a pretty good case that one of the primary reasons that people your age don't follow Jesus is because that they think that following Jesus means surrendering your freedom. That following Jesus restricts all of the fun that you want to have. You see the do's and the don'ts of scripture as command after command after command that robs you of joy and leads to a boring, imprisoned Christian life. But that's not true. Jesus himself in John 10, 10 tells us why he's come. And he says that he has come to give us life and life to the full. So when we follow Christ and fulfill the commands of scripture, we aren't led into prison, we're led into freedom. And true freedom is found when we die to ourselves and live in love-filled service to others. Anyone who has kids knows this to be true. There is more joy and more fulfillment when we serve others than when we serve ourselves. So uh, before Mallory and I moved to Gastonia, we lived in Arkansas. And uh, when Mallory was nine months pregnant uh, with Nora, we went to this very popular, beautiful museum called Crystal Bridges. It just so happened that the night that we were there was prom night in uh, Benton County, Arkansas. And so there were teenagers everywhere around the museum taking prom pictures with one another. And you had to park kind of far away from the museum and you had to ride a shuttle to get there. So we were riding in the shuttle, Mallory's sitting across from me and it's just us and all these juniors and seniors in high school wearing all of their prom clothes, prom dresses and tuxes. Well, I'm sitting right next to a guy and you've got to remember I'm 23 and I'm about to have my first kid and I lean over to him and I say, you know, this could be you in five years. His eyes got real big. He got this scared look on his face. He said, I hope not. <laughs> and his response is indicative of how most people think, even not teenagers. They think when they think about having kids that they're not ready for that responsibility. Kids are hard. I've got two hard ones, I can tell you. These kids, these students can tell you. They're draining, they're exhausting. Having kids robs you of the opportunity to, to travel as much as you might like, like to travel. It, it takes away some of the flexibility of your schedule. And when people don't have kids, especially men, they often view kids as this obstacle to joy and freedom because we view all of our personal freedom as the path to joy. That's why this kid was so terrified. But anyone with kids knows that though your selflessness increases in raising children, your joy increases all the more. The love that your selflessness produces is worth so much more than traveling or sleeping in. The reason for that is because freedom, joy, contentment, satisfaction, all of these good things in life are the result of selfless love 
not selfishness and self-indulgence. Again, we see Christ as our example of this principle. Hebrews 12, one and two says, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. So lay aside the sin, lay aside the selfishness. Why? Because when we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So what did Jesus know was on the other side of his sacrificial death? Joy. What motivated him to selflessly lay down his life on our behalf, in our place? Joy. Jesus knew what we have to believe in order to obey this command in Galatians. We must believe that there is more life to be found on the other side of love than there is to be found on the other side of selfishness. The more of ourselves we give away, the more freedom we get in return. But not only does loving service set us free, Paul shows us that it's through love that we fulfill the law of God. Look at verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if you've been tracking with us throughout Galatians, you see this word law and there should be an alarm going off in your head. Why is Paul introducing the law? Hasn't he spent almost the entirety of his letter dismantling the necessity of the law? dismantling that we use the law as a means of salvation? Why is he bringing it up all of a sudden? Why is he now concerned that we actually fulfill it? Yes, up to this point in Galatians, Paul has tried to dismantle the necessity of the law as a means of justification. And in verse four, he even goes so far as to say, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. So why has Paul changed his tune? Or has he? There's a difference between verse four and verse 14. And the difference is that Paul is no longer talking about the law as a way of salvation, but rather as a way of living for those who have been saved. Obedience to God's moral law is the fruit of salvation, not the root of salvation. So Christians, having been declared righteous by God through faith, still obey the law, but they do so with a different motivation. Because we've been accepted by God on the basis of grace, our obedience to the law has changed from earning God's love for us to expressing our love for him. God doesn't require that we keep his commandments in order for him to love us but he does require that those who claim to love him obey his commandments. Here's a quote. Paul's teaching throughout his letters is that though it would be a gross error to say that the sinner must love God and his neighbor in order to be saved, it is entirely true that the Christian saved by grace out of gratitude for this salvation loves God and loves his neighbor. So love is not a requirement of the law as a means of earning salvation. Love is the fulfillment 
of the law as a fruit of salvation. And you can't miss some of Paul's irony here in verse 14. We know that Paul has a sense of, of humor with these Judaizers. Remember, the Judaizers have been teaching the Galatians all that they have to do to fulfill the law of God and therefore have a relationship with him. And Paul essentially tells them, you don't need circumcision. You don't need to celebrate all of the various feasts and all of the holy days. If you wanna keep the law of God, I'll tell you how to do it in one word, love. The way to fulfill the law of God is to love there's a parallel passage in Romans that expresses the same thing and gives us more insight as to what Paul means when he says that the love, that love fulfills the law of God. It's in Romans 13, verses eight through 10. He says, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. We see that Jesus actually says the same thing in Matthew twenty-two forty. He says that all the law and all the prophets hinge on love, love of God and love of neighbor. Because of the situation in Galatians, which seems to be an issue of internal conflict, Paul focuses his attention on the aspect of love in human relationships, but the principle is still the same. All of the Old Testament law, all of the commands of scripture are intended to point us to two things, right worship of God and right relationship with people. The error that Paul is protecting us against in this passage speaks to both. When we realize that freedom means death to self, then we are free to love God and others. When we recognize that Christ has fulfilled all of the law perfectly in our place, we no longer have to think about ourselves and our performance and our ability to keep the law. He's already handled that part of it. We no longer have to think about our appearances and what people will think about us. At last, we are free to forget about ourselves, forget about our appearances, and truly and genuinely focus our love and attention on our neighbor. And when we love our neighbor, Paul says we fulfill the law of God. When we view our freedom through this lens, that our freedom is given to us to love and serve others, it leads to a radically different result than before. When freedom is misunderstood as an opportunity for the flesh, it leads to destruction. But when it is understood as loving service to your neighbor, it leads to life and unity in the body of Christ. And that's what we just experienced as a church through 180 Weekend. When all the parts of the body are working together in perfect love and unity, there is life in the body of Christ, not destruction. So what? How does this apply to us? Very straightforward. Am I using my freedom to serve myself or serve others? You'll notice by this question that there isn't a third option. You either serve yourself or you serve others. Romans 6 frames it this way, that you're either a slave to righteousness 
or you're a slave to sin. I think a lot of us think that we can live in both camps, that we can serve others when a need arises, but as long as there's nothing needed, then I can generally go about my own business. So let me ask you a more specific question that I think is more of the core of what Paul's getting at in this passage. Who is your life oriented around? Who is your life oriented around, yourself or others? When you look at your schedule, when you look at your hobbies and your habits, who is at the center of all of that? Are you serving yourself? Or are you serving others? In your home, is your family's life oriented toward you and your needs and your preferences? Or is your life oriented toward your family? At your work, do you think that everyone there exists to serve and support you and your needs? Or are you there to serve and support them? In your church, do you view church as the place where you have all of your physical, spiritual, and emotional needs fulfilled? Or do you see yourself as a participant in the church, one whom God might use to bring physical, emotional, and spiritual fulfillment to others? This is a very impactful quote from Mark Dever's book, Discipling. It encourages us to remember how every small thing we do is an opportunity to serve ourselves or serve others. Here's what he says. Here's a funny question we're thinking about. How did you attend church last Sunday? Where did you park? What time did you get to church? Where did you sit? Who did you speak to? Each one of these decisions provided you with an opportunity to give yourself to others and join the work of Christ or They provided you with an opportunity to look out for yourself and do what's best for you. Every day is filled with countless opportunities to selflessly serve others. When you make breakfast in the morning, when you drive your car, when you turn on the TV at night, all of these are occasions to serve ourselves or to serve those around us. So in all of the major and minor decisions of your life, do you follow Philippians 2, counting others as more significant than yourself? If not, this is my concern. What does that say about the type of Christianity that you have embraced? At the heart of Christianity is a sovereign king who did not use his power and freedom to serve himself, but rather came to us to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. At the heart of Christianity is our Lord Jesus on a cross saying to us, deny yourself and follow me. So the danger of embracing a false freedom is that you also embrace a false gospel that leads to destruction. So we've talked about this at 180 all weekend. We talked about the light. That was our theme. That's why it's on my t-shirt. And that took us several times to 1 John, where John contrasts over and over again what it looks like to walk in the light versus walking in darkness. And Kevin DeYoung, our speaker, gave a great illustration on the first night from 1 John 1-7. Here's what he said. We can't walk down the path of darkness over here 
while Jesus is walking on the path of light over here and say at the same time that we're walking with Jesus. We're not. If we're on the path of darkness and Jesus is on the path of light, we're not walking with Jesus. We don't have fellowship with him. We're walking in opposite directions. And 1 John chapter 2 verses 9 through 10 takes up this picture of light and it applies it to loving others. Here's what it says. 1 John 2, 9 and 10. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him is no cause for stumbling. So here's what this means. We can't say that we are walking with Jesus when we are living oriented around ourselves. Those who are in Christ will display the same love and service and sacrifice that he did, not perfectly, but obviously. It will be obvious to a watching world and to your brothers and sisters in Christ, whether or not you are living for yourself or whether or not you're living for the sake of others. So is that true of your life? Are you living for Christ by living for others? Or do you need to repent today of abusing the grace of God as an excuse to live in selfishness and sinfulness? Do you need to receive today the true freedom of Christ, the freedom that allows you to forget yourself by dying to self and live like Christ did in selfless service to one another? Let's pray. God, thank you that you've shown us the way to life. Thank you that you are for our joy, that you desire that we experience the fullness of life as you've created it. And as the designer of life, God, we confess that your way of doing life is better than ours. So I pray that we'd submit ourselves to that. I pray that as selfishness and sinfulness creeps into our heart, and as we have a tendency to allow that to happen, using the excuse that we're free in Christ to do whatever we want, I pray that your spirit would rebuke us. I pray that your word would lead us into the life of Christ, the like of sacrificial death for one another. Would you build up your church as we live to serve you through serving others and not ourselves? You are our example of this and we praise you and glorify you for your work of salvation that you accomplished on our behalf. Would we then go as your people and share the light of Christ out of a burden to love others well? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church located in Gastonia, North Carolina. Please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.